was younger, I could never really pay attention. The reason why I don't watch TV pretty much at all is because I can't sit still and engage with the TV. Like it's, it's just, you know, transfer of information from one media to my brain. And that's really hard to take. And I assumed that everyone was like this. And I genuinely assumed that as you grow older, you'd be able to pay attention better. So I remember sitting in church sermons, you know, wriggling around and like literally taking a zero of what the sermon was. And then just assuming that, you know, when I'm adult, uh, when, when I'm an adult, like everyone else sitting in the sermon who seems to be taking everything in, I will be like them as well and take everything in. So I genuinely assumed that I was just a child. And then as I grew older and I started working corporate and I had to attend meetings and, you know, take minutes because that's my job, I realized, crap, I am not taking any of this in. At about the 20 minute mark, you can pretty much guarantee at the 20 minute mark, you've, you've lost me. I, it goes in one ear and out the other and I can't process anything. And it's, it's, it came to the point where I'm like, is this going to stop my career progression? So I started thinking about it. Like, this is something that I've always experienced and I've just never stopped to think about it because I assumed that I would get over it by the time I was the age that I am, I was then. And I looked into it a little more I know that recently people with TikTok and Instagram scroll through it and they see a lot of memes. I didn't use, I, I still don't use TikTok and I rarely use Instagram. And if I do, it's, you know, for food, to be honest. But I know that a lot of people related to Instagram memes and TikTok memes of people with ADHD. And I didn't actually do that until I actually went and searched things up for myself. And that's when I realized, like, damn, I could, I could have ADHD. And this is just... That's, that's new to me. Stereotypes don't tell the whole story. I'm your host, Annie Prafke, and you're listening to Misfits a podcast featuring discussions with people who felt like black sheep in their communities because of their identity. Josephine Chandra, who goes by Jose, is a Chinese-Indonesian woman who lives in New Zealand. She currently works in food science, and she recently wrote a book on her experiences with ADHD and autism. In today's episode, Jose talks about moving from Indonesia to New Zealand as a kid, Chinese immigration across the globe, and the challenges of getting diagnosed with developmental disorders, both as an adult and as an Asian woman. Let's jump in.
glad to have you and excited to do the interview and excited to be on a on my first podcast so that's that's fun Ooh, yeah you can check this off your bucket list yeah absolutely to start out with can you just tell me a little bit about your family and your background sure so i am obviously i live in new zealand but i moved here when i was five years old um my family's originally from indonesia i was born in jakarta and my family are actually Chinese Indonesian, which if you're not aware, they immigrated from China to Indonesia a couple of generations back. So they are ethnically Chinese, born and raised in Indonesia, and then eventually, of course, migrated here to New Zealand. And I was born in Indonesia, as I mentioned, but yeah, pretty much raised in New Zealand. And I'm curious, uh, is there a large population of Chinese immigrants in Indonesia? Or is that a story that's kind of unique to your family? Yeah, no, no, there are a lot of Chinese people in New Zealand. And actually, this is interesting. And now that you've mentioned it, there's actually a, an exhibit in the Auckland Museum on the Cantonese migration from you know China to New Zealand. So Chinese people have been in New Zealand for a long time, pretty much almost as long as European migrants have been in New Zealand. And a lot of Chinese immigrants contributed to some of the culture that is in New Zealand. So a lot of them came from way back then. But of course, um, a few of them came much more recently. And yeah, as, as you mentioned, there are quite a few. And in Indonesia as well? Yes, there is. And I think for similar reasons, I think when the Chinese population started migrating from China into other countries, a lot of them came to Indonesia as well. Um, and that was to, I think it was during that period when, when a lot of movement happened in China. And I'm not sure of the specifics, but yeah, there is a fairly large population of Chinese Indonesians living in Indonesia, mostly to have a better life. Right. Yeah. I think that's sort of a, a bias of mine as an American that I have to mm. check often is that like, oh, like there are immigrants in other countries as well, other than the US. Mm -hmm. You know, we like to pride ourselves on being a melting pot and, and yeah. being super racially and ethnically diverse. And, and so I guess other than, you know, certain countries in Europe, I tend to not even think of ethnic populations and ethnic enclaves in other countries, right. but of course they exist. And the Chinese especially have yeah. just dispersed everywhere. Yeah. I remember when I was in Costa Rica, they actually have like a little Chinatown in, in San Jose in the capital, I, which I was surprised about. I think the more that I've traveled, and it's not like I've traveled like extensively, but the more I've traveled, the more I realize that there are huge Chinese populations in every country. And the most interesting thing to me is that there are specific Chinese cuisines catered, you know how there's like Chinese American cuisine, there's like specific localized Chinese cuisine in every country in the world, right? And I think Chinese cuisine is quite popular in Peru. I can't remember. Um, don't, don't check me on this one. But also they've influenced, I believe, the, the Pacific Island um, nations a lot. And so you see, even if you come to New Zealand and you, you, you know, you go to a Polynesian restaurant, like a Samoan or a Fijian restaurant, sometimes they feature dishes, which, you know, to them are comfort food, but you can see that there are Chinese influences in their dishes. Like um, one of the dishes that you, you'll, you'll find quite commonly in Samoan cuisine is sapasui, which is based on chap chai. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fun. I remember when I was in Ecuador, actually, I did eat at a Chinese Ecuadorian restaurant and it was also vegan. So it was very Fun. cosmopolitan. Yeah. <laughs> on the topic of food, does your family cook Chinese Indonesian dishes? Do they have fusion? What do they like to eat? This is the embarrassing thing. My parents don't cook. They're really bad at cooking. My, my mom... 
Uh, she did a lot of like those paste mix that you can buy from like an Asian grocery store. And the thing is, it was really hard to find Indonesian paste mix when we were younger. And now obviously it's a little bit easier, but more easily you could find Malaysian paste mix. So I always thought that I was eating Indonesian food because obviously we were Indonesian, but my mom was actually cooking Malaysian food and we just didn't know. <laughs> so my mom is terrible at cooking. My dad takes like three hours to cook one dish. And it tends to be like closer to Chinese style. He likes hofen, so it tends to be like fried hofen um, rice noodles. So in terms of cooking, I can't say that my parents have, you know, I can't say that they cook Indonesian food all that much, especially when I was growing up and they were they were both working. Other than food, were there other ways that your parents tried to incorporate either Chinese or Indonesian culture into your family and your household? Uh, unfortunately, this is, I feel, uh, this is really hard for me to say because um, they were privileged enough to grow up. I wouldn't say grow up. They were privileged enough to go to the U.S. to study university. So they adopted a lot of like Western mindsets and Western um I wouldn't say ways of doing things, but they adapted pretty quickly in the US. And so by the time we moved to New Zealand, and since we we're quite young, my family and I, um, my sisters and I were quite young, um, they really quickly had us adapt to the Western culture to keep us from not feeling isolated and left out. So unfortunately, we've lost a lot of like traditional Indonesian and Chinese Indonesian roots. And we are slowly introducing them back in by like eating more Indonesian food. And my mom is slowly cooking more Indonesian food. Not well, but you know, gradually. But unfortunately, um, at least when I was younger, not so much. No. Is there a reason that now your family has more of an interest in bringing back those cultural roots? Yeah, so it's mostly as as I'm sure you'll probably have experienced, it's realizing that we're losing touch with our roots. And she didn't want, well, my parents didn't want us to lose that side of ourselves. And because also there's been more Indonesians in New Zealand. They're cooking more Indonesian food. It's easier to find Indonesian food and Indonesian grocery products that it's easier to cook Indonesian food and you know get in touch with that side of ourselves, at least more recently than before. Next, Jose talks about what it was like moving from New Zealand to Indonesia and her overall perception of what the Asian community was like in her new country. So I know you were very young when you moved to New Zealand, but do you remember that transition at all? Actually, yeah. Now that you mention it, yeah, I, I'm surprised that I do. And I think it's because I went to a school which taught a little bit of English. So it wasn't like a huge stark contrast, like being dropped into a culture where I don't know anything. But for some reason, I do remember a lot of it. And I think it's because... I bounce things off my sisters quite often, and they remember a lot of the same things. So we keep that memory alive, sort of just discussing it between the three of us. So that's quite fun. I mean, it's pretty uneventful. We just, you know, slowly started learning English from what English we already knew. And since our parents could speak English pretty fluently, it wasn't like we didn't have that same sort of immigrant experience as other. I've seen other people on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram experience, which is, you know, they have to translate documents and they have to translate this and that for their parents. 
because my parents could speak English better than us, actually. So actually, my childhood was fairly uneventful besides, you know, just moving into, oh, it's not as hot in New Zealand. And, you know, people look a bit different. I want to talk a little bit more broadly about Asian identity in New Zealand. When I looked up the demographics of New Zealand, it said that the population is about 15% Asian, which is a lot higher than in the US, which is about 6%. So I'm curious if there was a large Asian population in the area of New Zealand where you grew up, and if you felt like there were, I guess, uh, a lot of avenues for expressing Chinese identity. Yeah, uh, this is a really interesting question. So the the high school that I grew up, I call it college, um, but that's our high school. The college where I that I attended was 60% Asian. So let, oh, like, wow. let that sink in. It's 60% Asian is in like a combination of East Asian, Southeast Asian, and South Asian as well. But I grew up in, in East Auckland. So Auckland obviously is, well, I shouldn't say obviously. Auckland, if you didn't know, is the biggest and most densely populated city in New Zealand. And that means that, of course, you'll have a big cultural mix. I live in East Auckland, which has traditionally quite a large Asian population, and it tends to be more on the Chinese side. So there are a lot of Asians in the area that I grew up. I grew up in a, in a um, primary school where there were quite a few... I'm introducing a term now. Pakeha is the Maori word for traditionally it's for non-Maori people, but because the first people who you know came to New Zealand and sort of stayed a bit longer than they probably should have were white. They were British, right? So Pakeha is more uh, closely linked with white people in terms of the, using the term. And some people think it's derogatory, but it's it's shown not to be. So Pakeha is typically a word that in New Zealand is used to just describe white. New Zealanders. So in the, the primary school that I grew up, there were a mix of Pakeha that were, you know, born and raised in New Zealand, people who had migrated from the UK or other parts of Europe. And then there were also obviously like Asians, South Asians, um, Southeast Asians, and South Africans. And there was a whole mel melting pot. So it wasn't just like Pakeha New Zealanders who had, you know, born and raised in New Zealand and that made up the majority and just like a couple of other like ethnic minorities here and there, just like one or two. It was a lot of the class were not like Pakeha born and raised in New Zealand, if you get what I mean. I think I'm privileged in the sense that I always assumed that everywhere was like this, that, you know, you'd get ethnic diversity regardless of where you went. And I think that's, that's like a privilege for me. And that we we do have a huge amount of ethnic diversity, at least in East Auckland, in the corner of Auckland that I grew up. And if you go to different areas of Auckland, you'll see that there are different ethnic groups which are more dominant in that area. For example, in South Auckland, you'll see a lot more like Pacifica and South Asian ethnic groups. And in North Shore, like in the in the north part of Auckland, you'll find a lot more like Koreans and Chinese people as well. And a lot of Indonesians in the north part of Auckland. I think it's interesting that there's such a large Asian population. It seems like kind of a mix of people who have like lived in New Zealand yeah. for a long time and just moved there. Yeah. So that's a unique yeah. experience, too. I'm thinking like, this is maybe not the same example, but when I moved to California and also in Austin, it's such a transient community mm -hmm. that it's 
it's like at least half of the people I meet here are not from Austin. And the same thing when I was living in San Jose too. It's like people are always moving in and out to meet people from all over the place. And I think that gives a place a really unique culture. Of course, the people who've lived there for a long time often complain that they're like, well, you're taking the culture away because it doesn't mean anything if, if you're bringing your, their Californianness and all these other things in that we didn't have before. Were there, were there people who were born and raised in New Zealand or maybe Maori people who were less uh, enthusiastic about all of these immigrants being there? I think I'm lucky to say that I haven't really experienced it, but I know for a fact that there are people who do feel like that. I have a friend who grew up in Tauranga, which is the fifth biggest city in New Zealand, which, I mean, New Zealand's not huge. The fifth biggest is not going to be, you know, the biggest city in the world. Um, but she had people throw rubbish at her when she was walking down the street because she was Asian. So I think in that respect, I'm lucky that I don't really, exp I, I have, I've never really experienced that. But I do know for a fact that there are people, and not a lot of them, but enough to know that racism is still very much a thing in New Zealand. Well, you said there's kind of different pockets where there's large Asian population, but I'm wondering how that transferred in terms of representation. And you can talk about representation in different job fields and maybe in the media as well. Maybe just of the ethnic diversity in general Yeah, in New Zealand. I mean, that's interesting as well, because I always assumed, again, that this was pretty normal. To be honest, I didn't watch a lot of TV in New Zealand growing up. And I think it's because we didn't have a lot of channels. We didn't have, you know, Sky TV where there's a hundred different things to watch. And there weren't a lot of New Zealand shows to set, like, so to speak. It would usually be American shows or Australian shows and just a couple of New Zealand shows. But the one that I do remember is called What Now? And it was like a Saturday or Sunday morning thing and they had an asian woman as one of the hosts and was he maori i think he was married but he was definitely in the pacifica community and i just assumed that that was normal just to have a diversity just to not like to not just see white people on tv doing everything presenting everything and it's different when you get into like the breakfast shows and the shows that are more towards adults like a lot of the um news hosts tend not to be asian but there is still some representation in terms of the maori community so i think in terms of diversity in terms of representation there was more diversity as compared to probably what you saw growing up in the u.s in terms of the job market and the like the different industries, I think that's where you get a bit more skewed. So I, I work in the dairy industry, which is huge in New Zealand, and I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for that because I think dairy is a really, um, it's a point of contention, I think, for a lot of people in the US because of how the dairy industry is in the US. But it's predominantly dominated by middle-aged white men because that's the sort of community that did dairy farming in New Zealand since way back. And then, you know, they just stayed on the board. They just stayed on the dairy board. They were the ones who were being, you know, promoted. And then a little bit lower down from like the C-suite and the first couple of levels, there is more diversity, but it's definitely not to the same extent as if you went into, say, I don't know, a different, like my parents work at a bank. And they definitely see a lot more diversity because they do have to work with different kinds of people. But yeah, it's not, it's not well represented in every industry that you see. You will still see areas like the service industry, such as supermarkets, 
where it is predominantly people of color working on the cash registers, for example. One thing I think that's interesting about the media, well, one, I should have done my research before this. Did you grow up in the 90s or 2000s? Or I have no idea how old you are. I, I was born in 1996. So I grew up, so I, I moved to New Zealand in like 2000, 2001. Okay. Well, we're pretty close to the same age. I was born in 1995. Uh, I'm thinking back to kind of the shows I watched, which were reruns of 90s shows and early 2000s shows. And one, a lot of shows, I think during that time, were trying to show more diversity. Mm -hmm. It was kind of that multicultural Mm -hmm. multicultural era. I don't think a lot of issues of like how those people might have had different experiences were necessarily shown. Right. But often like the side character or the best friend would be black or Asian or Hispanic. So I did see that. But one, they were never like the main character or like the superhero or the love interest or anything like that. They were just the side character. Or sometimes they got killed off at some point in the movie. Right. That, That was something I witnessed. And then there were a few shows where people of color were the main characters. So I think of like the Cosby show, Sister, Sister, That's So Raven, things like that, that were trying to push things farther. But then at the same time, I didn't actually see that reflected in my own community and in my own society. So for example, in the Cosby show, the parents are both black and one's a doctor and one's a lawyer. I didn't know any black lawyers, any black doctors or any doctors of color. I mean, I'm sure there were, but I didn't witness any. I didn't have any teachers of color until I think middle school. I think TV at that time was trying to show this oh, we're all inclusive, all multicultural society when it wasn't actually being reflected in those industries. And there was, you know, still for probably multiple reasons, probably some discrimination, um, some opportunities that people had to go to college and to pursue things, what people thought was possible. And I think now that's changing. And so maybe I think that shows somewhat the power of the media, right? When you see that representation, it does start to change things in society as well. So that was kind of a rant, but no, that, that's interesting to hear. Because now that you mention it, there are, because I know that shows like um, Everybody Hates Chris was geared towards the black community so that they could have something to relate to. And I'm pretty sure that there were shows like that for the, you know, the Pacifica and Maori communities in New Zealand. I just didn't watch a lot of them, number one, because I was really, really young and they were not, you know, child friendly. But yeah, I, I just didn't watch that much TV. Up next, Jost talks about her national and her ethnic identity, which for her is a bit complicated. She's ethnically Chinese, but her ancestors moved from China to Indonesia generations ago. And then her parents moved the family from Indonesia to New Zealand when Jost was very young. While Jost says there is a sizable Asian population in New Zealand, including other Chinese Indonesians, she says that sometimes it was difficult for her to find her crowd. I want to jump to a statement that you had said in our initial conversations, um, our initial Facebook correspondence. And you had said that you, growing up, never felt Chinese enough, Indonesian enough, or Kiwi enough to fit in anywhere. And Kiwi, I'm taking it to be a New Zealander. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you meant by this? Right. So I mentioned growing up, I grew up in a pretty ethnically diverse community. And there weren't other, like, I knew one other Chinese Indonesian girl, but I didn't go to the same school as her. And she was sort of in like a different area of like a different suburb. So we didn't meet up often. I just, you know, knew of her existence. And occasionally we had play dates when our parents arranged it. But I always assumed that because I didn't know anyone else who was Chinese Indonesian, it was normal not to feel like I fit in. Like, I saw other Asian people and I'm like, they're 
so much more Chinese than I am. I don't know how to explain this. They still spoke the language. I don't speak Indonesian. I can understand it and I can speak really broken Indonesian. Like maybe I can order a plate of noodles if I go to Indonesia, right? But that's pretty much the extent of it. But they still spoke like fluent Chinese, you know, Cantonese or Mandarin. And they, they seem to still be really in touch with that side of themselves. So I felt like I, I, I was never, you know, Asian enough. And I, this is really terrible because I feel like the Asian community, especially since the rise of, you know, Facebook groups like Subtle Asian Traits, they really like to gatekeep. And I know part of it is because they like that they can claim certain parts of their identity as, you know, Asian. But I feel like part of that has led to certain levels of gatekeeping. And I know they're not serious about it, but that side of like, I don't, I don't relate to a lot of the things that other Chinese people do and a lot of other Asian people do because my parents, you know, raised us in a way that they thought was more appropriate for a Western community. So yeah, I never felt Asian enough. And because I didn't meet with other Indonesian people, and if I did, they often spoke Indonesian like fluently. <gasps> I didn't feel like I could relate to them either. Um, and of course, like I was clearly, I'm clearly not white. I don't look white. I don't talk like a white person i don't have those mannerisms and i didn't i wasn't raised you know a lot of my friends were also still asian growing up because there just happened to be a lot of asian people around me so i felt like i never really fit in with like the pakeha new zealander community either yeah i i mean i don't know what else to say it's just like i i never really related to any of the ethnic communities that i came across and i just thought it was normal not to really belong to a community because there was just so much diversity. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I also think the gatekeeping comment is interesting because I think that's something I have experienced as well. And I, I've always had a hard time separating whether it's how much of it is self-perception versus a community gatekeeping. And I'm sure there's a little bit of both, but especially in college is probably where I experienced it the most because that was the first time I encountered like a larger Chinese population from China that I potentially could have made friends from. And I didn't really have very many at all. I can think of one or two people. I can think of two people who were international students from China that I became friends with. But I remember trying to go to some Chinese events at school and just not feeling like I fit in at all, like almost worse than when I would hang out with other non-Asians because I grew up with so many non-Asians, you know, our large part of it was the language. That's a huge barrier. And it's something that I wish I had studied, but I just didn't. And so I didn't have that piece. But then also, I think a lot of the Chinese international students, in my experience, and from other people I've talked to, I think this is common, they typically hang out with each other. Yeah. And just want to speak in Chinese yeah. and uh, are just very interested in doing something kind of like in their cliques. And I'm sure some of that, that's just, you know, it's like, we're thrown into a completely different culture. It's scary. Maybe we're not very comfortable with English. Yeah. And so, you know, you want to stay with people who are, are similar to you. Like I would probably, if I moved abroad, I'd probably find a group of Americans and want to hang out with them as well. But it, it made it very hard to to make friends and with the, with the Chinese community and try to find an in because it just felt like an exclusive club to me. Yeah, no, I fully understand. I, I, it was really difficult um, when I was in university. I had to do a group group project which you know <laughs> as you do and i it was a really small class so you basically knew everyone in the class and i teamed up with three of my friends who i already knew and all three of them happened to be from hong kong and that was 
really hard for me because I didn't think that I could feel more isolated than I already felt at that time because they they like I I know that they didn't mean this in a bad way but uh, one of them was an international student so she found it easier to communicate some of her thoughts in Cantonese which is perfectly fair but then obviously since the other two can also speak Cantonese fluently they quickly reverted to speaking Cantonese between the three of them and just translating the final thoughts that needed to be you know put across to me at the very end and that was really hard for me because I thought, you know, the whole I feel isolated, I don't feel like I belong in a community had been, you know, long had long gone at that stage. But it it still happens. And they don't do it intentionally. I genuinely believe that they don't do it intentionally. They just they just found their community and they want to stick to it. And like I can't blame them for it. Even though it, it kind of sucks. <laughs> But I can't blame them for it. Yeah, that's what I felt too. It's like, I understand why you'd find your niche of people who come from a similar cultural background and understand a big part of your identity. But it just made me feel more isolated because I was like, I don't have a community of people with my very specific identity that I can relate to. But then I, I find as well that I can make friends more easily with people who feel like they don't belong in a specific community. Like if you'd come to New Zealand and you'd, you know, come to school in New Zealand, maybe we could have been friends because I, I just find it easier to, to connect with people who feel like they also don't necessarily belong in one specific community with a lot of shared context. And I think that's the fun part of it as well. You're finding people who, you know, feel a little bit different and, you know, you're bringing us together in a way. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm hoping, that it kind of forms this misfits community. And it seems like it does. I I think most people I've talked to have shared a similar experience. And I find I relate to the people that I've talked to really well often because we have this common experience of not quite fitting in. When Joe's first reached out to me on Facebook to be on my podcast, she not only mentioned her Chinese-Indonesian identity, but also her neurodivergence, which she says made her feel isolated. Joe's has ADHD, and she's self-diagnosed with autism. It has been a difficult journey for Joe's to get support, not to mention the challenges she's faced with her family and at work. Joe's explains all of this up next. I want to jump a little bit to a different topic now. So you shared with me that you were recently diagnosed with autism and ADHD, and you were diagnosed as an adult. I'm wondering if you're willing to share a little bit about your journey to getting diagnosed. And this is a fun part, I think, because this is this is the reason why I reached out to you, um, because for a long time, basically, I thought that I was the only one who was experiencing what I was experiencing. When I was younger, I could never really pay attention. The reason why I don't watch TV pretty much at all is because I can't sit still and engage with the TV. Like it's it's just, you know, transfer of information from one media to my brain. And that's really hard to take. And I assumed that everyone was like this. And I genuinely assumed that as you grow older, you'd be able to pay attention better. So I remember sitting in church sermons, you know, wriggling around and like literally taking a zero of what the sermon was. And then just assuming that, you know, when I'm adult, when when I'm an adult, like everyone else sitting in the sermon who seems to be taking everything in, I will be like them as well and take everything in. So I genuinely assumed that I was just a child. And then as I grew older and I started working corporate and I had to attend meetings and, you know, take minutes because that's my job. I realized, crap, I am not taking any of this in. I'm genuinely, I. it's not even that I'm new and I don't understand what's going on. It's just that for the first 20 minutes, I'm good. I'm like, yeah, I've got this. I'm taking minutes. I'm, I'm taking everything in. And then at about the 20 minute mark, 
you can pretty much guarantee at the 20 minute mark you've you've lost me i it goes in one ear and out the other and i can't process anything and it's it's it came to the point where i'm like is this going to stop my career progression so i started thinking about it like this is something that i've always experienced and i've just never stopped to think about it because i assumed that i would get over it by the time i was the age that i am i was then and I looked into it a little more and I started really relating it because because I know I know that recently people with TikTok and Instagram scroll through it and they see a lot of memes. I didn't use I, I still don't use TikTok and I rarely use Instagram. And if I do, it's, you know, for food, to be honest. But I know that a lot of people related to Instagram memes and TikTok memes of people with ADHD. And I didn't actually do that until I actually went and searched things up for myself. And that's when I realized, like. Yeah, I could I could have ADHD and this is just that's that's new to me, right? I was a good student growing up. I, you know, performed well, at least in primary school and middle school. Um, not so much in in college, but in university I did okay. So I assumed, you know, I can't have ADHD because I I can work, I can sit still. And, like I can literally sit still and just stare at something. My brain would be going at 100 miles an hour, but you can't see it. You can see me sitting still and looking like I am fully paying attention. So I went to the the head of health and well-being and I asked him, you know, I know that we have counselors that you can see for a couple of sessions for free. Can I talk to a counselor and ask someone about ADHD? And the counselor was like, you know, sometimes when I am tired, or when I haven't slept properly, I can't pay attention either. And I was just like, okay, that's really not helping because I, I'm genuinely feeling like this all the time. So I pretty much ignored that comment. I went off, saw the counselor, and that counselor was basically like not a family friend, but he knew who I was growing up, which was really, really tough because he basically invalidated all of my ADHD experiences. When I mentioned this is what I'm experiencing. My brain is constantly going. I can't pay attention in meetings. I don't blame him for this. He immediately reverted to how can we teach you techniques of meditation, of you know slowing down so that you can pay attention better. And that was really tough because it was basically saying, I don't think you have ADHD. I think you just need to manage what you're experiencing. I had never felt so angry in my entire life. I'm like, this is not what I'm telling you. So I, I cut that counseling session short and I went off. I found a doctor who specialized in, he was a GP, but he specialized in diagnosing for ADHD. I went to him one and a half hour session and answered a bunch of questions, talked to him for that time. I took a computer test, which I actually passed slash failed. I don't know how I should say it. I, I passed a test saying that I, you know, basically I, I did the test well. It indicated that I don't have ADHD, but he said, yeah, you have ADHD and it's just been hard to diagnose you because you've performed well and because you look like you're managing it. And that was really tough for me. But at the same time, it's really relieving because it, it was just something that I never believed that I could have. Asians and especially especially like Asians are not diagnosed a lot. Women are also underdiagnosed for ADHD. So you can see how Asian women are really, really underdiagnosed in terms of ADHD. So that was that part of the journey. The autism side is a lot more fun. 
because I'm technically not professionally diagnosed for autism. I'm self-diagnosed. And that's because it is almost impossible to get an autistic diagnosis literally anywhere in the world. If you have thousands of dollars and you can wait a few months to get an appointment with a psychologist, then go for it. If you don't have that kind of money, which I wasn't willing to spend, you could be waiting years to see a public assessor. And you first have to go to a GP to refer you to a public assessor if they decide that, you know, you don't look like you have autism. And that's really hard because, you know, autism can look like anything. You know how we typically have this assumption that autism looks like Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory? That's like our our stereotype autistic person. You don't have to look like that. Like, I'm autistic. I don't look like that. I don't present like that. I'm a little awkward, yeah, but I don't look or talk or present like Sheldon Cooper. So if you don't look autistic enough or you don't seem autistic enough, GPs can just not refer you. And if they do refer you, the public assessor can deny your claim to undergo an assessment if you are not suicidal or depressed enough, basically, because you're not high risk. Fortunately, I am not clinically depressed or severely suicidal, so I just have never been professionally diagnosed for autism. I've just done a lot of research. I've had a lot of self-doubt in terms of am I actually autistic or am I just acting like it? You know, am I just trying to convince myself that I am autistic just to fit in this label? But then I realized like people don't view autism as like a good thing. Not that it necessarily is. It's it's more just like it's a thing. It's a state of being, right? Like why would I want to label myself as autistic if I'm not actually autistic? You know what I mean? So it's more like my journey for being diagnosed with autism is that I'm not, but I'm fine with that because I know that I am. Yeah, it sounds like you're trying to find resources and a community that helps you understand how your brain works, yeah. which I think makes total sense. And I have heard that from other, some people who are di diagnosed and have gone through that process and, and other people that have not and have talked about how difficult it is. Um, and, and, you know, it's putting a lot of like trust into a professional who can just completely deny you, even if that's what you might have or what you think you have. Doctors are just in a weird position of power in that way. And I'm sure they have, in most cases, the patient's best interest in mind, and they're just trying to do their job. But it's difficult when you really feel like this is what's happening. This is my experience and you're not listening to it, or you have a preconceived notion and you're just going to deny me for whatever reason. And I've seen that in other things too, with my mom and with my grandma going in and, and myself too. Like you, you say one thing and you just don't feel like you're being heard. And so I think that's something that's frustrating. Yeah. The more I learn about medical professions and the medical industry, the more messed up that I realize that it is. It's like, it's no fault of the doctors. I think it just happens to be the culture that they've been thrown into, that they, they believe that they're the ones to, to fix everything. And that they know everything because that's, you know, what they've been taught. They've got a degree for it. They're, that's their profession. And it just happens to be the case that they do have a lot of knowledge. I, I'm definitely not saying that that's not the case. It just happens to be that people who experience certain things literally have lived experience of it. And that's not something that years of just reading a textbook can help you out with. Or, you know, a one-hour lecture when you were in university.
You've also mentioned that you're pretty hesitant to tell your parents about either your ADHD or your autism. Can you talk about why that is? Yeah. <sighs> That's tough. So my parents are really supportive. I felt like part of the reason why I felt like I didn't fit in 100% with the Asian community is because they were like, oh, if you want to go and do something, go for it. We'll support you. You know, they weren't like the super strict, stereotypical tiger Asian parents who were like, you have to study math, you have to study engineering, you have to be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. They were really supportive. So in certain areas where they weren't as supportive, it feels like it's just a topic that shouldn't be touched, if you know what I mean. Like they're so good in some areas that the areas that they're less good in, you assume that that's just not something that you should deal with. I was diagnosed with anxiety, which is pretty normal for people with ADHD and or autism in the last year of uni when I was going through my last set of exams and I was just, I had a nice little mental breakdown and I was like crying for like a whole weekend straight. And my parents sat me down. They were like, you know, if, if you need anything, if you have another panic attack or another, you know, mental breakdown, we're, we're here for you. We're going to support you and everything like that. And it's like the way they say it, they genuinely mean that. That's that's what they're genuinely willing to do. But in terms of putting that into practice, it's like different. Because I remember when I was in Zumba class, really random. I basically, Zumba class is fun, by the way. If you if you want to try Zumba, it's like very little pressure, but you, you do get a good workout. I'm slightly off track. Oh, I love Zumba. I haven't done it in a long yeah. time, but I, I have a friend who used to teach Zumba. And I yeah, love yeah, but I went to Zumba class because um, my mom wanted to go and I just wanted to make sure that, you know, she was keeping up with her own exercise. And I just had like a tiny mental breakdown for no reason in the middle of Zumba class. And I was like crying. Like I was literally standing at the edge of the room, just like crying and drinking water and like trying not to look at anyone. And everyone's obviously trying to give me privacy because they don't want to say outright like, oh no, you're crying. Are you okay? They just did that thing where they pretended that they didn't know that I was having a little mental breakdown. And my mom was like, okay, let's go. We'll, we'll just go. We're just leaving. Obviously, you're stressed. And I don't know why, but let's just go. And I'm like, I'll get over it in 10 minutes. Just let me stay here. Let me get over it. Let me catch my breath. And I'll, I'll get back right into it in 10 minutes. And she was just like, well, no, you're, you're like stressed. You're, you're obviously not okay. So we'll just go. And it's like, she's genuinely trying in a way to get me out of the situation which I've expressed that I'm uncomfortable in. But at the same time, she's not listening to me as someone who just needs 10 minutes to get over that emotional period, you know. And it's like, it's kind of that tricky balance between they are genuinely trying. Like the way she handled it just happened to be wrong in that situation because it wasn't what I needed at that time and she wasn't listening to it. But she was trying, and that's really hard. And it's like, I, I also feel like because ADHD and autism both have stigma with it, and because I did not really exhibit symptoms, like the traditional symptoms of it, I feel like they won't 100% believe me, or they won't know how to handle it. It's not that they're not open to listening to it, to what I have to say about it, but they just won't have the capacity to handle that because it's just not something they've ever dealt with before. So it's it's definitely not like they're bad parents or they're really unsupportive. It's just like, unfortunately, it's just something that I don't think they need to know. And it's it will just genuinely be easier if I just 
don't tell them. <laughs> Have you told anyone about either the ADHD or the autism? Yeah, I've told my really close friends. <laughs> and I told them with a little bit of an ulterior motive because apparently people with ADHD and autism tend to make friends with people with ADHD and autism. And I've noticed that all my friends are similar to me in some aspects or another. Um, so I shared it with them and described my journey. And I didn't necessarily tell them, like, I do think you have some of the behaviors or traits typical to ADHD or autism, but, you know, just dropping hints here and there that, you know, it, it might be something worth looking into. But I feel safe around them and they are supportive. They, I only have like four friends, to be honest, because, you know, it's hard to make friends um, with a brain like this, but they're the friends who kind of get it. So they're the friends that I share it with. As I've kind of like learned more about autism and interacted more with people with autism too, and, and of course, as you talked about, autism can look like so many things. It's a spectrum, right? And I think the first time I really interacted a lot with people with autism was in college, and I was in this club, and it was called A Plus Art Club, and it was where students from the college would volunteer with other adults on the autism spectrum doing art projects. And I'd say that the students in the club really varied on, on where they were in the spectrum. Some were pretty high functioning, and some were lower functioning. But some people, I like, you wouldn't know immediately that they had autism, right? Like, they could communicate pretty clearly. Interactions, conversations were you know, pretty, for lack of a better word, normal. And then maybe there'd just be some sort of awkward interaction or they wouldn't be able to express something all the way. And it made me think about just other people I know where they kind of got made fun of or it was very difficult for them to make friends because people were like, oh, they're awkward or they're rude or they don't have a filter or they just like say whatever the first thing comes out of their mind and things like that. And it made me think too, just in a society that's more accepting of different types of brains, I think there would be more understanding that maybe that's just how their brain works. Or, you know, maybe it's very difficult for them to have a filter and just having more empathy yeah. as opposed to immediately judging or assuming that they have ill intentions. Yeah. A really quick point. Um, high functioning and low functioning is no longer a label that is used. And it, it's because it denotes how useful someone is to society as compared to the actual experiences of the autistic person themselves. A better label would be high support or low support needs, and that better describes the individual themselves and what they need. And I okay, thank you. I, know. I did not know that. I'm always learning new yeah, things. So. I, 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 I'm always interested to see how because in your trailer when you were talking about, I, I know you spoke to someone else who was diagnosed with Asperger's. That's also a label that's no longer used, and it was just in the in the last couple of years, maybe a few years that that label has been thrown out the window because people realize that it was an ableist term to diagnose someone with Asperger's because it denotes people who are like, quote, high functioning, end quote, and the ones who have special talents, you know, as compared to people who are much higher support. But yeah, it's just, it's just really interesting to see how, how far or how different the autistic community is in terms of just labels and, and descriptors and, and words as compared to just like two or three years ago. Right. And I find everyone also like uses different words. Yeah. So the, the individual that you're referring to, she she says, I have Asperger's. Yeah, yeah I, I, would, <laughs> I would never deny someone being like, oh, yeah, you, you're not Asperger's, you're just autistic. But it's, it's just like, it's just something that I've learned is not used anymore. 
Right, right. Or another one I think uh, is like autism spectrum disorder. Some people are opposed to using the word disorder because it has a negative connotation, whereas other people I know do use. They're like, well, that's what I was diagnosed with. It's like a term that validates me. I, I use autism spectrum disorder or they just say I'm on the autism spectrum. So I, I find that everyone kind of has yeah, a different term yeah. and a way of, of doing it. And so I, I try to always stay up to date and also to use what people want to be referred to yeah, as. Yeah. I think that's a tricky thing because I was sort of dropped into this world really late on. So it's interesting to see sort of all the old stuff because all the YouTube videos that I watch are from, you know, 10 years ago and the times that they were using. And then much more recent influencers like Paige Leal, who is a really big autistic and ADHD influencer, using completely different terms and explaining why old terms are, are possibly ableist and not quite is correct. As I mentioned before, I would never want to invalidate someone's experience if they do prefer to use those functions. But it's just interesting to see how people take the different sides, you know, the old ways of doing it and the newer ways of saying things. You said that in New Zealand, or perhaps in your workplace, you feel like there might be discrimination against people who are neurodivergent. This really sucks. Um, I don't think it's just in New Zealand. I'm pretty sure we can all confidently say that this would happen all around the world because there is still such a stigma for it. It's it's just that, yeah, it's kind of like how years ago, obviously decades ago, people thought that people from different races are literally, you know, there's one race that's better than others in different areas. And, you know, the LGBT community, obviously there's something wrong with their brain. I'm saying this, you know, as a joke, but, you know, they perceived that there was something wrong with their brains it's it's that whole thing of people don't quite understand it yet because it's not commonplace it's not discussed a lot so their perception and i completely don't blame anyone for this because it just happens to be the culture that has been developed their perception of autism and adhd is that they're low functioning they won't be able to manage in a workplace as well as someone who is not autistic or doesn't have adhd and it's like, I think in certain areas of the of a business, that may be true. But at the same time, you, you can't decide that. And there are people who are autistic or have ADHD that are working their roles and no one has a clue that they are autistic or have ADHD and they're still doing fine. It just happens to be that there's stigma behind it. And there are ADHD, I think, is the, the more tricky one because it's just the perception that it's like, you know, like... The, the, the the like the little boy who's bouncing off the walls who can't concentrate who disrupts the class and everything and can't do his work properly who forgets everything and doesn't have his homework on time that's the typical perception of ADHD and so if you if you go into a workplace with that label this person is ADHD as compared to someone who isn't like there will be an immediate perception that the person who does not have ADHD can do typical standard work better. And it's like, I know that that's ridiculous because ADHD can help in certain areas of work. But at the same time, I don't blame anyone because I know where they're coming from. Some people I know with autism specifically will get a diagnosis so that they can have accommodations in the workplace. Like they, they think that having the, uh, the written out diagnosis will allow their 
their boss or their manager to kind of understand how they do things or to make accommodations for them so that they can perform. I don't know if that's the right word, but to, mm. to do their job more effectively. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, and I know you don't have like an actual written diagnosis for, for autism, but maybe for the ADHD, do you think that in any ways your, your manager having knowledge of, uh, of your ADHD would allow sorry yeah yeah so yeah no but would, would, would allow them to accommodate you better or to like understand how you function better and would that outweigh maybe stigmas is what I'm trying to say I honestly think at this stage for ADHD in the corporate environment that I'm in no I feel like autism is different because it's people sort of get that it's just a way that your brain is wired but they they relate it more to be a difference in social communication as compared to your brain can't handle certain things, which is how people see ADHD. Like with ADHD, they're, they're like, you can't pay attention, which means how can you sit in meetings, which means how can you do your work properly? Whereas with autism, even though there are actually a lot of similar symptoms between the two of them, they perceive ADHD to be, you just won't be able to do your work properly. So as much as you can have accommodations for autism in terms of, you know, you have little weird quirks that you need to get out of your system. I feel like asking for accommodations with ADHD feels like you're asking for free passes in a way. And I know, I know it's probably not correct and it's probably not the case, but I feel like that's the perception that we just have because we just don't understand ADHD all that well still. Lastly, I want to jump to your audiobook that you briefly mentioned to me. Tell me about that. Yeah, so <laughs> my ADHD went, you know what would be fun <laughs> if you wrote a book on your experiences, even though you literally just learned about, you know, your autism and ADHD like a few months ago. So I went and did that. Um, I experienced what is typically known as hyperfocus or special interests and that's pretty common in the ADHD and autistic community that's basically I take something that I'm like oh that's interesting and I really really dug into it and I did a lot of research into it and then I realized that there are a lot of influencers who are white <laughs> talking about these issues but there's not that many Asian influencers there's not that many and there might be, I just maybe have never heard of them or seen them or, you know, encountered them. There, there are a couple, I know that there are a couple Asian influences, but there's just, it's just not that prolific. And not many people talk about how ADHD and autism interact with each other because ADHD is typically known as the really impulsive, high energy, you know, inattentive disorder, whereas autism is typically considered a really structured, you know, it has to be this way. I won't take no for an answer. This is the way it has to be. It's really structured and rigid. So it's kind of, it seems sort of counterintuitive that they really, really commonly occur together. And people just don't talk about how they do occur together and how the fact that because they're so different, they mask each other. And it's really hard to be diagnosed with one or the other if you have both because of how they interact with each other. And so I was like, this is going to be fun. Let's write a book on that. So the title of the book is Net Zero, Living with the Paradoxical Conditions of Impulsive ADHD and Structured Autism and Rethinking What It Means to be Disabled, which is a mouthful. But I named it Net Zero because of how ADHD is typically considered really, really high energy. Autism is really typically considered to be, you know, structured. They like things rigid. And also because we need to rethink how disability 
which is why because autism and ADHD are both disabilities, how it shouldn't be considered a negative, but it shouldn't be put on a pedestal and considered like a positive either. It's just neutral. It's just zero. It just happens to be one of the many things that you can be, and that's perfectly normal, and that's perfectly fine. Um, And I've written it in a way that I'm hoping describes the typical traits and behaviors of autism and ADHD and both of them together in a non-clinical manner. So it gives examples, it gives some of my experiences and some of my friends' experiences when I've talked to them. So you can see how symptoms can come up as without it just being, you know, like a like a clinical thing written in a medical piece of text. So hopefully it's a little more easy to understand and a little more relatable, especially for people who are trying to figure it out for themselves, because it's just really hard to, and I know that. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to check it out. Where can we find this book? You can find it on Amazon. It's on, it's a, it's an ebook. So you can find it on Kindle and I'm sure that you'll put a link to it somewhere in the podcast. Yeah. I'll drop a link to it in the description of the podcast. Thank you. Well, that's all I have uh, for you today, Jose. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Annie. Thank you for listening to Misfits. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at ACXPMisfits and on Instagram at ACXPMisfits, where you can also send us a message with ideas for the show or let us know if you or anyone you know would like to come on as a guest. We'd love to have you. Also, thank you to Gabe Fordunker for the music in today's show.